Chapter 20, Eloquent, Part 2. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Eloquent, eloquent. Eloquent.
During this whole process, I had an altar in my bedroom where I would meditate. On the altar, I had pictures of my children, as well as remembrances of other family members. With an ocean between the conflicts that I had with my family, I could safely feel them in my heart and speak to them in the form of prayer. I would apply the same technique when I chose songs to sing. Sitting at my piano, I would sing Don Henley's song, Heart of the Matter, or Leonard Bernstein's Somewhere, and direct the lyrics and the emotion of the melody to my children or my parents, hoping that somehow they would get a sense that I was communicating with them. At this time, I had no physical contact with my parents. I truly believe that there was not enough room on this planet for them and me to share the airspace. I read a book once called The Dance of Anger that said when family members have conflicts, they create distance. Some can live next door, some move to another city. I had to move to the middle of the Pacific Ocean to feel there was enough space for me to exist. I was striving to get to the point of a state of bliss that I had been taught about. In layman terms, a state of bliss means to activate the pineal gland, which is located behind the forehead and is sometimes referred to as the third eye. The pineal gland is about the size of a lima bean and is unfortunately dormant unless it is activated. It's not like the heart where it just keeps beating as long as you're alive. This little gland is what turns the light on to your immune system. Once the pineal gland is activated, there is basically a domino effect for the thyroid, thymus, lymph, and adrenal glands. For those of you who may be interested in knowing what my experience of activating my pineal gland is, close your eyes and begin breathing consciously. Now, with your eyes still closed, roll your eyes up to the middle of your forehead to where the pineal is located. Continue breathing slowly and deeply until you feel completely relaxed. 
set your intention to activate your pineal gland by thinking of a white light such as a star in the heavens above. Let your eyes relax for at least 10 minutes and you may experience a pulsing of light in your midbrain, which is your third eye. This is a magical moment, so it takes practice and focus. It also takes a genuine connection with spirit, which is completely effortless. You're just there in the moment, ready to receive. And when you do, you are completely energized because now your immune system is working optimally for you. One day, I was sitting on the rug in front of the altar, and with my eyes closed, I started seeing an image. It was such a new experience, and I didn't want it to end. The image was of a shape that looked like an eye, an almond eye, with a sweeping line at the end, which began pulsing in my mind's eye. In that moment, I received an ethereal message from my great-grandmother, Adasa, whom I was named after. Donna is the English derivative of my Hebrew name. The message I received felt like she was telling me, you will be looking through my eye. My great-grandmother conveyed to me that she had lived a life of oppression, and she wanted me to experience all the things that she never could. Feel the grass beneath your bare feet unbound in shoes. Wear diaphanous clothes on your body that embraces your femininity free from shame. Let your hair flow on your shoulders in the breeze and feel light as though you were floating. These were her gift of words to me. It was a very sacred moment joining with my great-grandmother's soul. And from then on, I saw my designing of clothes through my great-grandmother's eyes. On my next trip to Los Angeles to visit my daughter and son who was in town, I made a special effort to see my therapist to discuss the life-changing news that I had received. When I moved to Hawaii, Beverly and I made an arrangement to have phone appointments as well as in person whenever I was in the city. By then, I had already created a few garments for my wardrobe. That day, I wore a hand-painted gardenia pattern chiffon blouse. I had this crazy prolific gardenia bush in the garden outside Jared's office, which would give me 40 flowers at one picking that I could float in a bowl in the house. Never before had I been successful in growing gardenias. So naturally, I wanted to pay tribute by having them painted and turned into something that I could wear. Beverly took notice and was quite impressed. She not only commissioned me to make her something that day, but she advised me to contact a luxury boutique, Maxfeld, in Beverly Hills and talk to the buyer. Beverly also told me about a shop in Malibu called Planet Blue. That was very encouraging and really stimulated my imagination. I took three of my blouses as prototypes to show the manager of Planet Blue and left them on consignment. After returning to Hawaii, I received a call that one of my blouses had been purchased by a celebrity's wife. 
I was fortunate that Jared and I had made an investment in a rather small commercial building on the main drag of the town of Waimea called Mamalahoa Highway. <laughs> there were other businesses occupying the building with one vacancy that was 500 square feet. This became my atelier. Down the street a little was another boutique that specialized in local crafts. A very well-known citizen of Hawaii, Patty Cook, owned a boutique called Cook's Corner, where she sold locally made food products and crafts. Patty knew everyone on the Big Island. She was a terrific source for lahaula woven items. Hawaii's favorite shortbread cookies, jams and jellies made of berries such as pohoa that you could only find in Hawaii, chocolate, anything and everything that was grown on the Big Island and made there could be found in her shop. When I received a knock on the door of my atelier from a woman carrying a camera, she boldly explained, I just talked to Patty about my latest project and she recommended that I see you. At that point, I had no signage and kept the facade of my atelier more or less like a little laboratory with the blinds closed. Shri, the lady's name, told me that she was the fashion editor of Honolulu Magazine and was starting a modeling agency. She explained that she was looking for unique items for models to wear in a book that she was creating called Hawaii, Heaven on Earth. I showed her the very first hand-painted pareo, as well as a dress that I made in a very similar pattern. Shri decided to use both items. The day of the photo shoot came. The location was in the newest lava field, Kalapana. In 1986, the volcano Kilauea left a massive trail of lava there. You really had to watch where you were walking because some of the lava was still soft enough to sink into. At the edge of the shore was the glistening black sand created by the path of the volcanic flow. Shri brought a model that was a mixture of European Polynesian blend, fair skin and dark hair. The dress I designed for myself, which was hand painted, red hibiscus, fit the model perfectly. She stood barefoot on the black swirls of lava, holding the matching Perea above her shoulders so that the wind would catch it like a sail. Behind the model was a lava tube, which is cavernous and quite awesome to explore if you have the courage. This made a great backdrop for the lady in red. Two more of my personal dresses were incorporated in Shri's book and those were shipped to Honolulu so she could use them on her models at two locations, Queen Emma's Summer Palace and Princess Iolani's Palace. I was in the process of making another dress from a rose in my garden called the Peace Rose. Shri chose to use this one on her model for the cover of Honolulu Magazine, as well as a little article explaining who I was and what I was up to on the Big Island. Together, we coined a phrase, Paris in Paniolo Paradise. I was an anomaly in Waimea doing couture, while the majority of the citizens were dressed Paniolo style. Paniolos were essentially the Portuguese cowboys that worked on the Parker Ranch 
which was a million acres of cattle land. The common Paniello style is red and white or blue and white, large check cotton cowboy shirts and moo-moos, sort of a picnic tablecloth effect. There was a very small faction of artists painting silk, but I was the only one treating it as couture. My work was definitely juxtaposition to the norm. to start this episode, Donna. That just sounds uh, tremendous. It sounds like there's never been to Hawaii, but it sounds like there's nowhere else on earth really like it. Oh, honey, we should meet up there. You know, (laughs) I I missed your wedding in Australia because of the pandemic and, you know, and and it's a 21-hour flight and Mm. with all of that and everything going on, it was just, but we could meet in the middle in Hawaii, honey. There are a lot of a, a lot of uh, flights to Hawaii, and uh, that's very doable. So yes, let's put uh, oh. that one for the future. That would be that would be wonderful. Oh um, my! Oh my! Oh, that would be we face to face. We could we could um, share our time together and with with all of our community on Love's a Secret Weapon. That would just be outrageous. <laughs> and speaking of what we were just talking about, because mm. this was written. Uh, a decade ago. Yes. And now Kilauea, you know, she was quiet for a while. Mm. Kilauea volcano on the big island is referred to as the goddess Pele. Mm. Mm. And when you go to the volcano area on the big island, it is awesome. Mm. It is another world. You feel like you're on the moon. And, and and when you're near the cauldron, you know, it, you just take your chances if you can get close enough to see the yellow sulfur that she spews out, plus all the particulates. But it is an amazing experience. You That's the closest to the core of the earth you'll ever be. <laughs> well, it's interesting because from what I, what I uh, looked up about the volcano, I think it's it started erupt. Its latest eruption started in late 2021, so quite a a while ago now, and ended on March 7th, which is a significant <gasps> day for you, as as many of our uh, listeners might know. That was your your well, it is your birthday and and your recent <laughs> birthday. Oh my! Well, it <laughs> it was significant for many reasons, but so you know, it interestingly enough. 
you know, I've been following the, um, actually there's two volcanoes, Kilauea woke mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. as well as Mauna Loa who had mm-hmm. been dormant for, for many, oh, many, many moons. But um, in a more metaphysical way of speaking about the volcanoes, yes, I'm happy that she quieted down. Maybe she's responding to other activity on the planet because there's so much rain, so much extreme weather patterns yes. that are yes. that are occurring. As a matter of fact, the healing of your country, you know, mm-hmm. the million acres or, you know, and all the animals that we lost in the fires in Australia, you know, it's, to me, it's mother nature's way of saying, you know, please listen. You know, We, we live on a sacred, sacred uh, blue marble as my son, Joey calls his music, you know, his, his latest project, but the energy of the volcanoes, especially Kilauea, is um, one of five mountains on the big island. And when I lived there, um, the legend was that there's a grandmother, there's the uh, mother, there's the aunties, mm. and then there's the adolescent. Mm. And the adolescent it started in 1983 when she was in her um, pubescent period mm. and preparing to give birth. And of, co- of course, the volcano is giving birth to land. Absolutely. And, and so I actually went out and visited one night. Um, I wanted to see the lava flow, mm. and it was spectacular. It gives you a sense of humility that, you know, from the core of the earth, you know, it's just bellowing out this, this molten lava. And it's so gorgeous. And then it's, you know, it's like hissing into the ocean and flowing in, creating land. And she did that pretty consistently for, well, from 1983. um, I've forgotten exactly when she quieted down. But I know when we came back to the mainland in 2010, she was still belching out so much toxic energy. So she's trying to purify you know this earth this planet she in her way she's belching out these toxic fumes these toxic uh, particulates and creating land at the same time which um i guess is really not being appreciated or noticed and you know it requires a tremendous amount of reverence especially now that islands are being devoured, you know, by the ocean rising and, you know, and people are having to migrate off places where they've lived for hundreds, yeah. maybe thousands of years. So um, very significant. And yes, walking along those black sand beaches that are sparkling, you know, just like crystals, it, it just, it just gives you a total different imp- impression of life it's like seeing a newborn baby coming out <laughs> into the world and you're just like in total awe of of that life and i i think i'm gonna stop there <laughs> because it is just completely awesome when you think about the life on this planet you know and and uh, what what we need to do to stop and listen to uh, to let her 
rejuvenate and and replenish and and repair. Um, but in the meantime, my experience in Hawaii and painting silk and working with women mm. to create, you know, the garments that I still have quite a few pieces mm. that mm. I enjoy because you know, we talked about choosing the silk that wouldn't mold and that the moths didn't bother with, mm. and you know, all the elements wouldn't destroy. Yeah. And it's true. I, I mean, right in one of my, my nightgown drawers, you know, is, is one of my hand-painted pieces and it's just like new. It's that's crazy. Not, yeah. I think that's what we were talking about in that previous episode, the idea that if you invest the time on choosing the the right material for the right environment or the environment that you're in, it, things can things can last for generations. And I'm sure many people listening, while they might have not necessarily created the clothes they wore, although some of them may have, particularly some of our audience who have been familiar when you were talking about even designing your own clothes in the 60s and simplicity pattern and all those sorts of things, that there might be people out there who have kept these garments that they've designed or, or they bought at that time and the extent to which um, they've cared for them all these years and they've they've managed to keep them I think is is really special yeah it's pretty darn amazing you know? and, it's, and it's and it's pretty cool it must be pretty cool to think you know something you've created and and you know I'm sure painters feel the same or sculptors or whoever else that you create something and it goes on to have another life with someone else Yes, indeed. Yeah. um, Actually, I have a friend who visited me in October from Hawaii, and uh, she reminded me that uh, I think it was in 2000. Well, she was my friend, Keiko, who was running for mayor on the Big Island on the Green Party Mm -hmm. ticket, Mm -hmm. and um, that I had made her a campaign wardrobe, you know, and and she said um, some of her pieces she still enjoys. So, you know, and that was the year of the dragon, I believe. So I had some dragon images painted, Mm -hmm. and she reminded me of that. So, yeah, you know, (laughs) of course, she loves clothes, and and, uh, we have that in common so fantastic and yeah because as as listeners are are getting exposed to this story because they might not know as much about it um because you know you haven't always in the same way that we've spoken about the 60s career we haven't spoken as much about this but i guess just to to remind listeners from where we left off that at the moment a, a lot of what you're talking about was very much about designing for your own passion your own interests there wasn't a thought really at this early stage that we're talking about that this would become a business and become a series of boutiques, which ultimately it did. That's true. That is totally true. I mean, I think we spoke about moving to a a completely different environment. You know, I mean, even though I vacationed in Hawaii over and over again, you know, it was for a limited amount of time. And so whatever I brought with me, you know, or if I needed to acquire something, you know, then I would purchase it. But living there, that's a whole other experience. Yeah. And, you know, and, and living, living in a, on an Island, um, it took about a year for me to open my closet with all of the clothes <laughs> that I did bring from California yeah. and see things that I designed, you know, like in the 60s that I still had, a, mm. I remember a suede ensemble and it went to rust. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> things, things that uh, some things, you know, maintained and, and I was okay with, but 
I just realized, you know, I'm living on an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And the elements are very different. And, you know, it, it was just I guess adjusting plus, you know, I was still kind of in shock about my, you know, my biological father. So there was a lot of healing going on. And I think, you know, meeting Carol and Karen uh, from Kalalani, the, the hand painters that I met just an, about an eighth of a mile of, away from where I was living, um, opened up a whole creative window for me to explore and express myself and and it became a you know it became an art form but it was also a mystical mm. art form as well doing something sometimes physical some sometimes something artistic something that's somewhat meditative uh, is really important for times when we're experiencing particular challenges or issues and this this idea that whether it's something that's a practice such as a meditation or a mindfulness exercise or whether it's something that's not considered you know meditation or mindfulness but puts you into something very mindful because I imagine working with clothes working with sewing is something that that really you, you kind of have to be a bit in the present moment and you have to be very aware of yourself to do so and we know the benefits of present mo moment awareness yes and <laughs> and the process that we were going through is that you know I would purchase um, white silk mm. very varying degrees of you know, thicknesses and plies and, and um, some of them would be different textures. So I had quite a variety of different silks that I was working with that were all French. Mm. And that's how it started. Then, you know, um, we'll, we'll probably get into the technique in a little bit, but mm -hmm. for anyone that was, is interested, you know, it, the silk is stretched. So you need room in, in a space Um to stretch the silk that you're going to be painting. And then if you have somebody like me that says, well, wait a minute, you know, I, I see the body and I see mm. how I want to lay this out. Mm. And I, and I know what pattern, you know, I'd like to go here, like to go here anatomically. Mm. Mm. And, and then I'd convey that to my painter. And, and while, while she's painting, you know, I have, other fabrics that have already been painted and and they're being hand rolled uh, uh, the edges are hand rolled which is a technique that that um, we used silk thread from Japan on um, mm. the French silk and it's t 10 to 12 stitches per inch mm. Mm. and you know that's when I started thinking about heirloom quality it, but if the first two years was all about technique and once you once you have the fabric stretched and the paint goes on, mm. then the next step is I had to, I had to steam the color and um, and so there's a, a big machine in, in part of the space mm. that's that's cooking the color and there's no guarantee so yeah you're like uh, hoping that that there's you know more success than failure and fortunately you know my the woman that that trained with me um was very diligent and so there there was more success uh then then it needs to be stretched out and dried and ironed and and you're working with a living breathing 
fabric and mm. it, 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 silk it comes from a worm you know that lives in a mulberry bush yeah. and, and grows in a cocoon and you know we used to think about you know how many worms did it take to make yeah. this how many you know what the life that was recycled into mm-hmm. this fabric and then when it's wet you know it grows mm. like a worm mm. it mm. grows and as it dries it shrinks just like a worm moving. So you think about all of these elements and um, <laughs> you just have all of these various dimensions of awareness while, while you're engaged in making a blouse or making a dress. You know? it's, it's, it's interesting how you started this latest reading Donna this idea just to briefly touch on um, is this idea of the pineal gland and what that means and listeners might have heard of melatonin and from what I understand and I'm I'm not in this space so if anyone knows better than us please let us know but um, the pineal gland is responsible for producing melatonin which is um, implicated in sleep and and other functions but from a I guess a philosophical point of view or um, uh, views of, of different thinkers, this idea that perhaps it may represent something else. It may represent, um, I think they call it the seat of the soul or something like that. Um, and so it was interesting how you started this reading talking about this activation of the pineal gland because from what I know, often with meditation practices, um, I think there's actually been fMRI studies into this, so uh, functional magnetic reason, uh, imaging, I think it's called, where when people engage in a meditative state, they are activating the pineal gland. So really fascinating topic. Yes, well, <laughs> the first time I experienced that um, was uh, was with a a Chinese um, acupuncturist and he literally walked into the room and blew his breath into the room. (laughs) And it was like this energy force. It was like a gale, you know, Mm. and, um, and it just blew that energy right into, you know, I guess the center of my brain. And then the activation began. Um, But, Little later on, I heard about uh, a scientific ex- uh, discovery called Higgs mm-hmm. boson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And um, the Higgs boson experiment uh, proved um, that the pineal gland, when activated, um, you know, started uh, stimulating your entire immune system. And they, rather than just leaving it as the Higgs boson experiment, mm. they called it the God particle. Mm. So for anyone that wants to look that up, you know, that it's a very interesting subject. What I finally um, got out of all of this was that we're all given the opportunity to heal ourselves mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a state of stillness mm-hmm. um, where with breath, with consciousness, with awareness and that connection to the source of light mm. that is kind of on a metaphysical level, the gift that we're all given. Yeah, yeah. So we have this, we have this little seed of light within ourselves to activate and connect with the source. And I imagine that, you know, it can be a religious experience, it can be a metaphysical experience, it can be a spiritual experience, it can be probably people that have taken LSD, and I've never <laughs> done that. But, you know, I mean, I can't speak to that. But, you know, when the pineal gland is activated, it literally turns your body on. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, and it's all about the Kundalini. It's all about your spine. It's waking up the 600 plus nerves in your spine and, you know, and feeling alive and electric, you Mm -hmm. know, and connected as we, you know, we continuously say on the podcast that we are all one. It's that sense of connection to all life. You know, I'm not a a, a Kuda Monday that crawls up a mountain. I'm not, I'm not a, a jaguar that hunts a deer, you know, but all life has, has an essence of that source that came in and, to, you know, create life. And, um, and it's, it's in the earth. It's, it's, it's in the oceans. It's, you know, uh, we need to talk to an archaeologist or an anthropologist mm-hmm. or a geologist for, for some of it's, it's in science, it's in metaphysics, it's in religion, it's in spirituality, but it, it's, it's just, it's life and activating your pineal gland is it, well, it's just magic. It's absolute magic. Whenever it happens to me and it happens in so different, different mm-hmm. situations mm-hmm. and not on a continuous basis because I'm not a, I'm not a monk and I'm not a, you know, like <laughs> a practicing Buddhist or somebody that goes and sits on a rock for two hours and, mm-hmm. you know, and allows that, that energy to flow. But when it happens, wow. And, you know, I remember it happening to me as a little kid. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're innocent and you go into that wonderment stage, you know, where you're just in awe of life and you close your eyes and you give yourself as a little child, that moment of stillness, you close your eyes and, you know, you might think you're just imagining, but somehow you, you know, think light twinkles and, 
<laughs> I don't know how else to explain it. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just a layman, yeah. you know, living life and sharing our lives with other people and, you know, and all life. And so mm -hmm. just my way of explaining it, but, you know, you have a more scientific way of explaining it. And melatonin, I do have a little experience with melatonin. I've mm -hmm. never taken it, mm -hmm. but I do know I do know a couple of young people. There, mm -hmm. there seems to have been a fad. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, you know, to give children who have a sleeping problem and who mm -hmm. have to get up and go to school in the morning and they can't mm -hmm. go to sleep at eight o'clock or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and moms were giving their children melatonin to help mm -hmm. them go to sleep. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I know the source of melatonin. Cherries. Oh, right. Cherries in any form. They can be fresh. They can be dried. They can be juiced. They can be whatever. Cherries are the natural source. Well, this is the issue, isn't it? That, and I remember it as well. That a lot of people started, you know, engaging in in taking melatonin capsules before bed. And you know, I think there's there's always a place for certain things, but just being aware of what you're doing and what can be the effects of it and yeah are there also other things that you should be doing which is thinking about how you sleep and how you've designed your room and and when you turn off your devices and things like that that can be sometimes some some natural changes that we make um that don't always require us to go to to, to something in a pill form but yeah but you, you know, know what uh, dr adam you know the, the melatonin for an adult you know, especially as you age, you know, you, you do have a physical depletion of hormones. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, as a supplement for an adult, melatonin apparently is, it doesn't, you know, affect you like it would a child. Mm -hmm. So, so, uh, you know, it, it's something that, you know, can be used, I think, I don't use it, but you know, I've heard that it's effective. And yes, I agree with you, along with taking something, you know, I mean, CBD, for, for that matter, if you if you need something or a glass of wine or whatever to relax, and, um, but it's to find peace of mind, mm. and to ask for rejuvenation so that you can begin a new day. That's very, that's very true. And I think just uh, I'm kind of reminded of, and I think we've touched on this briefly before, but in terms of this idea of cultivating a, a connection with people, this idea of we are all one or having kindness towards other people or compassion, I'm just thinking of, because we're talking about meditation, the idea of what's called a loving kindness meditation. And, and those yes. that are listening can find these online just by typing in loving kindness meditation and finding one that you like there. There are a series of, of relaxing yourself, but saying a, a series of almost mantras or phrases. And that's why it's important to look at a few and see which ones connect with you the most. But it's a kind of exercise where you become comfortable and you bring to mind um, different people. You start with yourself and you repeat phrases like, may I be safe? May I be happy? May I be healthy? May I live in peace? And then you go to someone who you're very close to. It can be a person, it can be a pet, and you say the same, you know, may you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and, and so on. And, and then if you want to, as you progress, you can connect to people that perhaps you've had a bit more of a problematic relationship with, or there's some conflict, or there's some difficulty. And to put it out there, this idea of, may you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, when perhaps you're engaged in 
in some sort of conflict or maybe that person's just experiencing a difficult time. I think it builds compassion in ourselves, it builds kindness in ourselves and that can go outward. And however people want to believe that, whether they believe that some sort of spiritual connection or they believe it just puts yourself into a mindset where you then engage with these people in a different way when you do see them. Um, there's a lot of evidence for this. There's a lot of scientific evidence for it for a range of positive outcomes, such as just having more accepting, kind feelings towards yourself and others and seeing that common humanity between us rather than that division. I think that is so beautiful. <laughs> well, thank you. And, and in the spirit of connecting, we would like to welcome or introduce our latest fan guest, Gary Wells, who writes online and is interested in, in pop culture. And, you know, what's I think what's really cool about the internet, and I know this might sound very... Um, <laughs> I don't know, it might show my age a bit because I remember a time pre-internet, but... It was always so hard <laughs> to, and, and you guys, your business, which I know you will, t- you will talk about in subsequent episodes, were really at the forefront of using the internet for online commerce. And But, um, you know, it used to be very hard to connect to people with similar interests, you know, the whether you're interested in pop culture or particular TV shows or, or whatever. And, and what the internet has allowed um, people to do is to put their interests out there and connect with like-minded people. So Gary has a lot of interest in a lot of the topics we speak about, a lot of the people, the music groups, the movies and, and so on. So we had a fun chat with our latest fan guest recently. Oh, wonderful. Well, I look forward to talking with Gary and I look forward to our community to share with him and, uh, and be part of the conversation. So welcome, Gary. Well, love is a secret weapon, and we are really pleased to welcome to our Love's a Secret Weapon community pop culture writer and blogger Gary Wells, who produces the very fun and very well-researched Vintage Leisure at soulride.com. How are you today, Gary? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for having me. I'm going to put the applause machine on. (laughs) All right. I love it. I'll take it. Everybody needs a fan, right? Oh, for sure. Yes, and I do too. <laughs> Absolutely. We don't have the, the budget for an applause machine, but we will <laughs> do something <laughs> with that. And, okay. And, and Gary, we're, um, we're interested in where your story begins. In terms of pop culture, to begin with, were you a, are you a child of the mid-century? or? Well, you know what? I was born in 1972. Mm. Oh, my. Same as so, my daughter. So you are just, well, you know, that's the rites of passage, darling. And the, sure, you're sure. coming up to the best years of your life. That's that's the way I'm looking at it. I'm going forward with a smile and I'm ready to go. Anyways, I, um, I grew up in a Christian home. And so mm-hmm. not a lot of um, current, you know, uh, music and movies were, were really acceptable. So mm-hmm. I found myself turning to the oldies and um, I listened to a, a lot of oldies as a child and it seemed to just build from there. I, I, I became more interested in 
in uh, the middle of the century, started with music, like I said, and then and then it went into the movies and whatnot. And, you know, I can trace uh, Elvis Presley back to the beginning. I can trace uh, Leave it to Beaver um, mm-hmm. back to the very beginning. So and but there was something about it all, not just the enjoyment for me, but maybe I was wired with a certain thing where I really got into it. I sensed that there was a depth to uh, living in this era in my mind. And, and I, and, and I call my website soul ride because I feel like that's what I'm doing. You know, my, my soul is taking a ride and I was felt like I was able to tap into something really significant in those years. And it just grew from there. May I, may I comment that um, I feel like this world is raising its frequency and entering into the energy of love more than fear that has been driving us in the past. Mm-hmm. And you, my dear Gary, are, are a, a soul of the future. Of course, many, many souls, if, if one believes in that, but you, your soul um, is of is ranging in a higher frequency so that you feel a sense of community and you you feel that sense of renaissance in the 60s and maybe late 50s but throughout the 60s yes. that was very very focused on the idealism of love absolutely you you phrased that well that's right yeah it's um and you you grew up in toronto that's right. I was born and raised in Toronto, and I'm still in southern Ontario, uh, not in Toronto anymore. But oh. yeah, so it's been a, it's been a Canadian experience, a Canadian journey. So, <laughs> well, I've you watched. Know, my, my husband is a Canadian, but I, I, I get that mixed up: a Canadian, a comedian, a Canadian. <laughs> Why get boxed in, hey? You know? <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. Live free. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. Excuse me for interrupting. Go on. Oh yes, so so it, it just sort of went from there, and and in and in high school, uh, I began to write. Uh, first of all, it was poetry and short stories. Uh, if I if I read them now, it might be quite embarrassing. They were pretty derivative of whatever I was into at the time, but um, it just sort of grew from there. And and I think it was the films of Elvis Presley really that I grew up watching. And everything you ever read is is I guess sort of. Uh, negative from a negative standpoint about the quality of his films which and as I grew up I could see that plainly uh but I I kept asking myself but what about the joy what about the the fun what about the, the the sheer bliss that I feel watching these movies is that not worth something so I I began to think I'd love to to write a book on his movies and to to dish on each one and (laughs) I had read a lot of trivia books that so-and-so visited him on the set during this movie and blah, blah. And that's fine. But I wanted to talk about, you know, the suit he wore in that one scene or, or, mm. or the song and the origins and this and that. And that, as time went by, uh, you know, a book sort of faded into the, the, the mist. But I thought, well, maybe the Internet will afford me some sort of a vehicle that I could, that I could do this. And mm-hmm. When I started years ago, it was a means by which I could dump out all this poetry that I had built mm-hmm. up. But then I, I thought, well, now that that's all done, maybe I could write about some of these things that I enjoy. And so, mm. again, reading my early blog posts, it's like, oh, boy, like, I, ho- I hopefully I've improved from there. But, you know, <laughs> um, but but I thought 
I want to get this out there. I'm not sure if anybody will read it. And I kind of try to steer away from wanting the likes and wanting the, uh, the clicks mm-hmm. and wanting the, and mm-hmm. just sort of do it for myself. I kind of thought that's what a blog was about. So, mm-hmm. and if there was any quality inherent, then, then the people reading it, that would come. And, and thankfully it has, but that's wonderful. And I remember thinking maybe, do I have really enough things to write about, to talk about? Well, that has not been a problem because (laughs) it seems like no matter what I watch or what I discover, what I listen to, what I read, there's something I, oh, I I need to report on that. Somebody needs to hear about that. So it's been going on and, and, and with the internet, I've been able to uh, link up with some other people with with the similar mm. interests and uh, they've you know used me and i've used them to mm. to to spread this spread the news about the 50s and 60s and 70s and uh, it's been a real kick because things like this happen and you know you feel a camaraderie because there is some of us out there who not only lived it and did it uh, like yourself donna but but loved it and and it means something you know what i mean it's it's not just interesting to know that was released on this date but you know i i can imagine what the person felt who bought that record and when did they play it and what was the room look look like you know what i mean so mm-hmm. there was a, like i say there was a real depth in there that i i just need to keep mining so i i, mm-hmm. I plan to go on until until just to keep to keep on going that's lovely that's lovely i mean to um kind of live you know in that mindset and perpetuate it into the future sure. uh, the sense of community that you're feeling you know with this particular era and the message really when you go back to the elvis movies okay maybe the writing or maybe whatever you know sure. you could you can critique it, sure. but he was a true vessel of love. Oh, yeah. His voice never faltered. There was not one bad note out of that man's mouth. No. <laughs> ever, no. ever. No, no matter so, what nonsense he was singing about, he managed to <laughs> give it right. his thing, you know, his mm. thing. That's right. And did you, um, I was going to ask uh, two questions, Gary. What would be your favorite, if you have to choose one, your favorite Elvis movie? And then the second question is, have you seen the recent film, the, uh, the biopic? Well, the first question, you know, I, I thought once upon a time a while ago, I wonder if I could identify favorite movies. Because whatever mood I'm in, whatever season, you know, day of the week, my, my favorites <laughs> change. But I was able to identify that my absolute favorite movie, period, mm-hmm. is Blue Hawaii. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Night and you and blue Hawaii. The night is heaven me, and you are heaven to me. Hawaiian sunset peeping from the sea. Blue Hawaii. With Elvis as your personal guide to America's exotic Eden, our Polynesian paradise. Elvis brings you the vacation of your life in his first big musical since the songsational G.I. Blues. It worked. She's jealous. As he hits the beach with the most luscious armful of delight on the islands. Don't you like it? 
Oh, I love it. And I thank you for thinking of me. Oh, I wasn't thinking of you. I was thinking of me. Yes, the most gorgeous Wahinis on Waikiki are taking lessons from Elvis when he gets a job guiding gals with more than scenery on their minds. Let's go on a moonlight swim Far away from the crowd all alone upon the beach If I You know, the funny thing is, is that and this is the I try to try to keep my sight honest. Like, let's I, I, I admit that this this is a negative thing, but there's joy to be had. And Blue Hawaii is a perfect example because it set the, the die for Elvis. It was so popular and there was 14 songs. I think there's seven in the first 13 or 14 minutes, if you can believe it. Oh, wow. Um, I do. So, I, I saw it recently. <laughs> so, I, and I've just been actually writing or something recently about Blue Hawaii and GI Blues, Hal Wallace Productions, mm -hmm. battling mm -hmm. with the seriousness of Flaming Star and Wild in the Country at the mm -hmm. same time. Mm -hmm. And the box office, well, you know, Colonel Parker is looking at him saying, see, son, this is what we have to do. So, I'm digressing, but Blue Hawaii, absolute favorite, just because of the sheer, the joy of it, the fact that he was on location, which he wasn't often. Mm. Um, it, it's a it's a fun cast and great songs, and I I just love that movie with all my heart. Now, mm -hmm. the the biopic, it's funny. People get to know that I'm an Elvis guy or whatever, and people I don't I don't even really even talk to mm. and at work normally will ask me, "Hey, have you seen the movie?" Mm. and what I've come up with is, and they sort of chuckle because I, I am being kind of funny. I'll allow it. I tell them <laughs> I'll allow the movie. It, it's okay. Um, <laughs> because, and then I get into the weeds a little bit with some people and their eyes glaze over a little bit, but, but there's, there's um, he's taking some license with some of the, 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 the elements of the story. Yes. But you have to accept that with any Hollywood film. It's not a documentary. It's a, it's a, it's a dramatic film. Mm. So we can expect him to play a little bit fast and loose here and there. Um, the, the, the 50s, for some reason, and I can't, I can't figure it out exactly, I struggled with it. Something about, maybe it was Baz Luhrmann's approach, you know, the, the quick cuts and the fast moving and everything is, is coming at you a mile a minute. And I just couldn't really latch with that. But the 60s and beyond, Mm -hmm. uh, what I came away with was that it was very sympathetic to Elvis. The movie loves Elvis. The movie is willing to forgive him for any and all things. It even lets him off the hook a little bit with the drugs. If you dial into a couple of the scenes, uh, there seem to be all these reasons where he has no choice but to, but to use drugs. And I could argue a little bit with that. He needs to be held a bit more accountable, perhaps. But... Instead of a slanderous uh, movie that was filled with errors left and right, uh, it was a very sympathetic film that really held Colonel Parker's feet to the fire. I was kind of surprised. Mm. And they were very generous to Elvis. And, and in, in the final moments, particularly, it was, it was very sympathetic and it held him up to say, this man was something else. Look what he did against all the odds. So I definitely give points for that. And uh, Austin Butler, of course, it, mm. was, it was 
stunning Austin Butler. Um, so without that, the movie would have failed miserably. But uh, things came together and it was uh, it was pretty well done. It's very exciting visually. It's just it's it's stunning to watch. That's for sure. And uh, it was very exciting. And I thought it was a pretty good movie. And I thought it was like I said, it was it was OK. There's a couple things I could beef about. But that maybe is for another day. But uh, it was it, it was pretty good movie. Fantastic. And, and Dr. Adam, have you have you seen it? I haven't had a chance yet, so I'm I'm interested to sort of compare my notes with you, Gary. Once I do, have you seen it, Donna? You know, I must admit that I have a really hard time looking at anyone trying to portray that kind of an avatar. Absolutely. I would. I'm passing. <laughs> well, I don't blame you. And that was something that I said from the beginning. And I even think I in, in my review of it on my site, I said, you know what? We don't need Elvis. People don't need an Elvis movie for one thing. Like, thanks, but no thanks. Mm. And how can you accept there was nobody like Elvis, even in any way, shape or form. There was nobody. There's nobody that can get up on the screen and make me believe that it's him. So. Right off the bat, there's this, I don't know, a barricade or something like you can't portray the man. So I almost think, why would you bother? I mean, Austin Butler did well, but that's a that's a tall order. And that's that's the hard thing to get your head around right from the outset. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to divert into uh, one uh, biopic Mm -hmm. that was about marilyn and i think what what is her name michelle michelle um i'm gonna say michelle no it's not michelle williams hang on um yes yeah yeah she pulled it off Mm -hmm. i couldn't believe it because i'm i'm the same way about marilyn please don't try to duplicate or you know because it's only trying but in that particular yep. storytelling, she was so respectful of the character that she that she pulled it off. Um, but it's really hard oh, to, yeah. to try to recreate that kind of phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. And I do like what you say, Gary, about this idea that it is a bite. It is a it's a Hollywood movie that I think yeah. sometimes people pick these apart and say, well, a character's been omitted or amalgamated or whatever. It's like if you want yeah. the story, go to the original source if you want. Right. This, you know, do that. But I think it's also interesting what you're saying about where Elvis's career kind of could have diverged either way, that he'd done some of those more serious films. I really enjoy Flaming Star because I'm a big mm. Barbara Eden fan and she's oh, yeah. she's in that, of course, and, <laughs> yeah. one, and a wonderful woman as well. And um, uh, do, do you have any sense of what uh, Elvis thought of the way that his movie career went, that he could have gone more in that sort of, I guess, serious direction but he he went in this this different avenue well it's such a hard thing you know like this is what i mean about being a student of elvis as opposed to just a fan Mm. it it, it's almost less fun because there's so many uh, enigmas in his in his career and of course his films people almost get angry at me like how why how can you like this guy look at the movies why did he not you know choose to do other films and it's it, it, it it's so it's so much of a of a tangled tangled knot but I, I i just think that it was all driven by commerce and uh colonel parker's i do a buck um like i grew up you know hating his manager but i've, I've come to to learn that it's 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 not 
quite that black and white with with Parker. Mm -hmm. He was a, a master promoter and mm -hmm. there was nobody like him in terms of negotiating a deal and going up against the Hal Wallaces and and the people in Hollywood. So he got his boy the money and he certainly did well for himself with his many side deals. Um, but I think, I think, like I said, recently I was thinking about Blue Hawaii GI Blues versus Wild in the Country and Flaming Star. And you know what? Even to quote again from the Elvis biopic, one thing they got right was uh, Tom Hanks is narrating as Colonel Parker and Colonel Parker says, but you didn't want to see him in serious films. Mm -hmm. And I felt almost like, oh, I, I feel convicted now. You're right. Like, look at me. I love Blue Hawaii. Like, I love GI Blues. And I love Girls, Girls, Girls and all the silly movies. I love them. So mm -hmm. fans back in the day, well, they probably loved Elvis and wanted him to be another Brando or Dean. But dang, Girl Happy is so fun to watch. I love him. Shelley Fabre. It's so wonderful. So what do we want as fans? If Would we have wanted, you know, 31 really serious, dramatic films? Nobody would have seen them. He never would have got past six or seven. Mm. So... He made the romps that everybody loved. There was beautiful girls. There was great locales. And it just worked, I think. So why he kept going, there was just, he was just wedged into this place that he just couldn't get out. Or it would have taken a Herculean effort to get him out. And it would have been red tape coming out the, I don't know what. <laughs> so... It was maybe it was, you know, you get into that rut, as we all know, it's just it's so easy to just cruise along in that rut. It's the path of least resistance, whatever. This is easy. Uh, the script is no problem. There's 12 goofy songs and we're all we're all making money. Now, his career is is doing is is being harmed, definitely. But it's working. And so the thing also that Alana Nash, the author, made a good point that with his songwriting apparatus that he had, the publishing issues and all that, I think it would have been really difficult for Presley to have released records through the middle 60s that were competing with the Rolling Stones, the Birds, Bob Dylan, etc. Where could he have gotten the, 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 the material? I don't know where. Mm -hmm. So he was basically safe in Hollywood. It sustained him until the time was ripe for a change. So in the end, we have these wonderful, you're not kidding, wonder, wonderful films <laughs> that are a joy, you know, like just a, a joy to watch. And every now and then there's a serious one. Great. But the Elvis movies need more love, just same as the Beach Party movies. I'll defend them as well because of the joy, the fun, the delight. You know what I mean? So it's a it's a hard topic, but it's that's what I'll say about that. OK, and and let me let me just add that. You know, while I was doing those kinds of movies, um, you know, there was a, a bit of doubt of the quality. But in, <laughs> you know, in, in uh, hindsight, the quality was there. You know, the oh. mechanism, the mechanism of conveying it was more commercial. And that's what happened to Elvis. Yeah. But, you know, the Elvis, nobody else could do what Elvis could do. No. And that's and so the um, I want to say psychologically that Elvis allowed him, as you said, allowed himself to um, be managed by a man who was very controlling. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, there's a vulnerability in, in this human being. Um, allowing this kind of criticism, you know, even after he's gone. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I, I, prefer, I prefer focusing and lets the three of us just admonish how gorgeous this person is inside oh, yeah. and out. <laughs> and, oh, I can't get enough of him. Anytime I can watch his 1968 special, I'm oh, yeah. there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, for sure. And, you know, um, in my little EP, uh, you know, Donna Does Elvis in, in Hawaii. Oh, yes, uh, yes. That was my fond farewell and many, many months of tears knowing that it was my time to depart living there. Because oh. he left, he left, um, he left kind of a, I want to call it an like an ancient crystalline um composite in the islands and and you know he's he is he is hawaii for so many people and um and as you say gary you know the expression of joy and boy we can use that more and more and more (laughs) absolutely that's for sure yep this is so fascinating because i think it is delving deep into you know and then there's the comeback special of, of, of where he was going in in that direction do you have a favorite movie donna is it one of the hawaii ones because you see so much of areas that you made a home later on or well i stood in line i forgot how old i was but i was just a little girl and i stood in line for love me tender so mm-hmm. you know i mean <laughs> they were even handing out black and white eight by tens with his autograph you know already on them huh. and i I took that home and cherished it, you know, so, um, but I actually, I love Jailhouse Rock. I love that. That was a great, uh, his choreography and, um, and the songs in that just really flipped me out. Oh yeah, absolutely. For sure. I think that's his best. I think it's his best dramatic acting because he could play Surly so well. He, he could. It's funny because he wasn't really that way in real life, but he could play ignorant really, really, really well. Um, King Creole, I think maybe is his best film, mm. but I've often watched him in certain scenes in his face. And I think the material was so heavy that he did his best to rise to it. But the little bit lighter fare in Jailhouse Rock, he was just able to nail that. So those are two magnificent films with great casts both of them too absolutely and and that's the other thing like the beach party movies that when you think of this these casts that you had in these films just tremendous absolutely tremendous um yeah being able to see so many of these people and and how lucky you know donna for you to see some of those people in in living color when you were working on some of them right so tell me tell me gary are you living the lifestyle of the mid of the mid-century as much as I can, yes. And I think that for the most part, it's borne out in attitude and where my head is at. Like my wife will joke, you know, did you did you hear what I said or do you, do you know where we're driving? And I'm just thinking about who wrote that song and, and, and was that the Brill Building or was that Motown? And I'm just thinking about things from 60 years ago and that's mm-hmm. where my head is at all the time. And Well, to- your soul is comfortable there. Oh, it's very much comfortable there. And, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll talk with my stepfather and my, my mother and I'll say, you know, what a time it was where you could just 
be nice and be simple. And it was simple pleasures. And my wife and I live that way very simply. And it's, it's just less clutter in, in, in that era, it seemed. And so my head and my heart are there are there all the time. And I think sometimes I try fashion wise too to be. Uh... I was going to say, because, you know, I had the opportunity to be in Palm Springs for many years. And, you know, there's so many people in Palm Springs from their automobiles to their wardrobes, to their houses, to their furniture, to, you know, their entire lifestyle, even their cocktails, you know, are sure, yeah. definite from, from that era. So yeah. do you have a tiki bar? No, I don't have a tiki bar. Um, I have I have a study that I try to uh, fill with, you know, vintage pieces that I'll find. But uh, again, my, my basement is just my my happy place. And so I try to keep the odd vintage piece. But, you know, we always joke about it'd be nice to buy a, a cottage or buy a cabin somewhere that we can furnish with yeah. all these things that we find in the thrift stores or whatever. So, yeah. I don't get too uh, I don't get too forceful with the the furnishings in the house though I don't want to overstep my my place here you know so <laughs> <laughs> are you a, are you a record collector as well Gary Oh yes I <laughs> I, I got into it um, when I when I first began to experience the, the the vintage media sort of thing and then I realized dang these take up a lot of space mm. and uh, so. I got off of it for a while, but then I hooked up with a, I think it was a Facebook group where the fellows were sharing their records and I, I got the fever again. So now, yep, now I'm, uh, they're, they're spread all over the place. I try to find, I try to be choosy, you know, with what I buy because mm -hmm. I don't want just to have quantity because I don't know what I'd have to do in my basement to house them all. But yes, I am a record collector. I do love them. I, I cherish them. And I always wonder how on earth has this thing made it all this way 60 years later or whatever to mm. my hands, to my turntable? It's a, it's a thrilling piece of, huh. it's, it's actually from the past. You know what I mean? It's like seeing an old car at a car show. You're thinking, amazing. This is actually from the past. So the records are, are quite magical. Yes, I mm. do love my records. What I love well, about yeah. that, oh, sorry, I was just going to say that what I love about that as well is that they are still vibrant, that I, I think, you know, there can be that tendency to collect this stuff and it just ends up in a cupboard somewhere. But if it's being used, if it's being displayed, if it's being enjoyed, yes, yes. it's from the past, but it's, it's not just a relic from there. It's, it's, it's got a new life now. It sure, certainly so. does. You talked to Jack White in Nashville and his third man records is based on vinyl. Mm. Oh, Mm. And I've seen uh, the tapes as well are coming back, which I, I think we could take relief tapes, frankly. I think records are wonderful. <laughs> tapes, I don't think. But it's kind of a hipster thing at the moment where people are releasing right. their albums on tapes, which which is cool. That's okay. Okay. You okay, know. yeah. <laughs> Probably not anything, for us. Anything retro. But, um, yeah, but the vinyl, that is, I mean, the vinyl is, um, I, I'm trying to put this into words, but, you know, when you say it's it's the past and I, and I, Feel how you are about treasuring that era and now you're you know you you live it you live in it but but I'm trying to put it into words about how you know I perceive you know d just talking about my memoir but I uh, you know Dr. Adam and I uh, bring bring us up to the present and into the experience of of you know, looking at it in, in, from 
the reflection. Mm. But what what I think it's like any form of creativity, whether it's vinyl or you know or or a heavy metal car, um, that are were the best. You know, I mean, they, oh, they yeah, were, they were the best. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and that whole um experience of you know what's new and looking forward to the next model and you know mm. it was so innovative and i think that you know from my experience living in in the 60s guys <laughs> that you know we did have that period of time and it was juxtaposition because there was always a war going on yeah. um you know came through the korean you know then into yeah, out of a world war into the Korean, then to Vietnam. So, mm. you know, you always had that. But there was such an air of creativity. And I think that it was really stifled, you know, when uh, when the 70s came along and um, the Nixon era and, you know, politics just really put a the kibosh on a lot of um creativity i think you know mm -hmm. people people started withdrawing uh i think and um and it's been a step by step by step that way ever since but now i feel it's returning and i think what you are experiencing gary is you plucked the seed and maybe dr adam you have as well you know you plucked the seed from the past and are sowing it in the present uh. Yes, <laughs> I like that because that's what I that's what I hope to do with my site is is shine a light. Now I'm not maybe equipped to write about Cary Grant or Casablanca, some of the bigger names, but you know the 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 chrome and hot leather, you know the the drive-in <laughs> movies, the uh, the 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 people that you might have forgotten about, you know. And there's there's a light that needs to be to be shone on them as well. So I like what you say about the seed. Uh, I don't want you to forget about so-and-so, you know, so I'll try to get an article out there or, or this movie I stumbled on. Unbelievable. You guys need to know it. about this. Yeah. yeah. So I like that. Sowing the seeds. Yes. Yes. Well, um, in, uh, reading a story that a friend of mine has written, um, written, you know, written as a book about more of an obscure um, Hollywood noir star and, um, you know, his kind of, I want to call it uh, passion for for this person that is more obscure. And I mm. think that many people, um, you know, you, you're my uh, my call me mom because you, <laughs> <laughs> both of you could be my children. Um, <laughs> you know, you you have um, you have um, created a greater value for what was started and mm. really kind of you know especially for me the kennedy assassination uh started this this downfall of of the enthusiasm yeah and um and so to be resilient now and to come through this and to hold on to it and to shine a light like as you're saying um yeah. for, for whatever turns you on is yeah. really really important and each one of us makes a difference and that's what you're saying is whatever you know whatever makes your heart go pitter pat you hmm. know you know you need to share your heart with the world and and you know that i really encourage that and i'm so happy you're doing it 
Yeah, it's it's been thrilling for me. And and a lot of times people will, will come back at me and say, yeah, well, I don't get that from that movie. And I say, I understand that. But for some of us, there is something in this story or in this book or in this album, whatever, that can resonate with you at the right time in the right mm-hmm. setting at the right point in your life. And I'm telling you, somebody's put something into this man. And mm-hmm. you've got to, if, if you, if, if it hits you at the right time, you can find it. There's, there's just wonderfulness to be found, whether it's in, in, in a reminiscent sort of a thing, this is something that represents old times, or if it's inherent in the story, if it's there, it's there. And you may not feel it in, in, in that case, I'm sorry for you because it's there. G- <laughs> mm-hmm. Give it a, give it a, give it a chance. Give these things mm-hmm. a chance. I'm not saying let's go back and give this guy an Oscar or let's, I, I understand about quality and the levels of filmmaking, whatever, but there's things there for you to enjoy. There's, there's mm-hmm. bliss in there. There's bliss. Yeah, mm-hmm. a- absolutely. I think I was asked recently to do a really quick sort of media grab for, for something here um, on one of the, the uh, news channels. And it was about a, a farmer who had come up with a TikTok about his farming life. And they asked me, they said, why, why do you think this is really hit and why is it popular? And I said, you know what? I think it's because it's uncynical. He is not being cynical. Mm. Oh, yes. And, and I think people really want that at the moment. We've come out of some really difficult couple of years and people just want a bit of joy, a bit of happiness. And Excuse you know, me, Dr. Yeah. Adam. We have been going through this. For much patriarchal dominant years. period mm. for five or six thousand years mm. <laughs> we uh, we all have a lot of reparations to do mm. and you know and focusing on love is is the answer mm. yeah absolutely so true and we've been asking you a lot of questions but i know you've also got questions for donna um so so please you know uh, let's turn the tables let's um yeah let you do that all right, great. Because I, I did have a couple of, of things that I was uh, wondering about while I was writing my article on Donna for my site. And mm. it, so this is a great opportunity to, to maybe get it from the source. And the first the first question I had was, um, I've had discussions with people as to why more Donna Lawrence songs didn't end up on the charts. Why, why was there not more hits? And I've come up with a few possible reasons. And I just wonder how accurate these are. I've suggested that perhaps your voice uh, was was too good for pop radio, really. It was too rich and too bold. I mean, I've heard it said that your influences were more full-throated singers like Mahalia Jackson and Edie Gourmet. And uh, that influence can really be heard in your singing, particularly in the lower register. Uh, additionally, I did notice with a bit of a, a smile that um, some of the lyrical content of your early sides was quite mature. And I wondered if maybe that uh, was a bit of a hindrance to uh, widespread acceptance. And lastly, I know it's a long question, but <laughs> lastly, I wondered if your affiliation with American International and with Dr. Pepper uh, hurt your standing in the business at all. Did these two connections cause some listeners or record execs, AR men, whatever, to overlook your abilities as a singer and your marketability a young, uh, among younger record buyers? Hmm. Well, let yeah. me um, <laughs> take a step back. The, what comes to mind, it goes back to what you were talking about, Elvis, and, um, and that is proper management. Mm. Um, mm. You know, I think that the team that was in my inner circle uh, didn't have that focus 
And um, so the one opportunity that I think might have mm, slipped through the cracks was um, It Only Hurts When I Cry from Beach Blanket Bingo being Mm. released as a single. No. And that was never thought of. And, you know, and that's part of the movie track belongs to the company that owns AIP now. I'm not even sure MGM one owned it or I don't know. MGM. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, and that, so that particular version is the most popular version. And yet, you know, the one on my album um, was never really taken, you know, thought of at single. Oh. But, so to associate with the hit movie and, you know, and the main song from it, um, you know, the, I think that was a missed opportunity. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. The when we've spoken about this before, but yeah, the the management um, issue I think comes up again and again. And then I think, as you say, Gary, there were, you know there are other factors, of course, that perhaps the focus was on the Dr Pepper contract and things like that as well. So uh, yeah, definitely very multifaceted. Yeah, for sure. I mean that that song is it's a good point you make because. It's funny, like today, the marketing, that song, the single might have come out, you know, in advance of the film or the album. It would have been really, you know, heavily promoted. And uh, it's a magnificent song. So that's a good point. That That's a good example right there. Could have been a lot more done with that. And C'est la vie because, you know, <laughs> it's, I'm like you, you know, um, I'm not counting the likes and... Uh, I'm not right. doing this podcast for the numbers. I'm doing it to bear my soul and mm-hmm. that I have a beautiful companion to be um, honest with and who can, you know, be part of my life. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, doing what you love to do. Uh, to me, I'm going to even go back to what you said about how you were raised um, when you were young as, as a Christian. And um, hopefully uh, our Love's a Secret Weapon community will, you know, bear with me. But what I feel about Jesus is a man who um, never looked back. He didn't know that people were following him. Mm. That's my feeling. And... Um, because he he was who he was and Uh and others followed Uh and and that's all you can do is and and then in my in my own little world of seeing anyone who um who is really true to themselves they do the same thing they they never count the numbers or or look back either they just live their lives and uh what a gift Sure. Yeah, that's a good point. Good point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Gary. Sorry please. for that solemn moment. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, I had another question, if I may. Sure. Well, great. I, I was I was interested. This is maybe more of a personal thing. I was interested to learn about your stepfather, Maury Zucker. Am I saying that right? Yes. Uh, I was blessed with a good stepfather. I just wrote about Antonio Carlos Jobim, whose stepfather bought him his first piano. Um, Quentin Tarantino always credits his stepfather with encouraging his love of film. That family situation can often, you know, really have a positive outcome. And uh, I know that your stepfather stayed close while you worked at AIP, although by all accounts, those were 
well-supervised sets regardless, um, and that he and Dr. Pepper's reps were close by in the recording studio. And I, I wondered, looking back, was that stifling or did it give you a feeling of security and the knowledge that you weren't alone out in the wild or was it a bit of both or neither or what? Oh, or what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or a third. Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, I'm happy that you had a positive experience. Yeah. I really am because, you know, we all have to get here somehow. You know? yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> we, uh, you know, every mother is a conduit and no guarantee that there's a relationship, you know. Um, but um, I think there was a stigma in my relationship due to the agreement he made with my mother um, based on a lie. And um, therefore, you know, I don't think he ever really uh, became a fulfilled human being other than his photography. And, you know, he did, you know, um, what do you say, document my career uh, through his photography. And I, and, I, and I do think, you know, he had, a, he had his own uh, dark room at home. He was kind of an old school type photographer. So, oh. you know, and, and that was, as I've said before on this podcast, because um, I, you know, I did not know, the, you know, the truth until I was almost 50 years old about him not being my biological father. Oh. So, um, so the, the, the camera that he held was always um, my focus to bypass whatever obstacles were in the way. Hmm. Um, but it was, it was a difficult, difficult relationship because he, uh, I assumed more of the adult role. Oh, and, um, you know, and I, I, I was put in that position at a very young age. So it was a, it was a role reversal. Uh, um, some adults never grow up and some children are born to take on more responsibility and then huh. whatever, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can do a backflip and, and take some time off. Maybe who knows how long it takes to catch up with yourself. But yeah. uh, that's a that was my experience. It was quite complicated. Um, I do feel that he did his best. He did the best he could under the circumstances. Well, that's I don't, good. I don't think he would have chosen to lie. Um, hmm. You know, I think he, you know he wasn't that type. But he loved my mother, and he agreed to what she asked him to do. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we were talking about Elvis Presley a lot, and a lot of uh, the traffic at my site has to do with him. Uh, so my readers and I would like to know, uh, I'm wondering how your later studio sessions with James Burton and uh, members of Presley's TCB band came about. I know your connection to Burton goes back to Squeak and Deacon days. <laughs> yes. Um, I just wondered, had you stayed in contact with Burton through the years, or... And, and had it been a desire of yours to work with these particular musicians? Or were you simply just happy to be surrounded by such a pedigree? Mm. So James looked me up uh, probably in the early 80s, I think. Oh. Very early 80s. And um, he knew that I was married to uh, someone in the record business. Mm -hmm. And he literally came to me and said, you know, I'll 
let's take on a challenge. Oh. So he wanted me to sing one night. And that was the first thing we did. We went in the studio and did one night. And um, and then, uh, you know, I I wrote this little song, Sedona, and I sang it to him. And he, he said, well, let me put let me put a band together for you. And so I literally walked into the studio and there's James and Ronnie Tut and Chris oh. Allen and, you know, everybody. Um, wow. And uh, yeah, and and there it was. But you know, in my life, even though I hadn't recorded for many years in between, I was quite comfortable with that caliber because, you know, in my young life, I always had the A-list musicians for sure. all my, you know, most of yeah. my record, especially starting a challenge, in from the time I was fourteen. Um, till 21 I always I always had the the best musicians in California but yeah James you know took that on and um, and then you know a little bit later on I discovered that Cher's mother (laughs) that he actually contacted Cher's mother which I I don't recall her name Uh, Georgia Georgia Holt Georgia you're right and um and he tried to do something with her during this time when he was also involved with Roy Orbison and, and uh, you know, people like Bruce Springsteen were, you know, d- just gaga over Roy Orbison. And so James yeah. put the whole thing together before uh, Roy Orbison passed away. And, mm. uh, you know, people just like you have this beautiful reverence for you know, the, the music of the 50s and 60s, um, you know, Springsteen wanted to hear Roy Orbison before he passed away. And, yeah. Um, and so there is th- that reverence for, for what started then and what people are perpetuating. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it was quite, it was quite lovely. He, he did tell me that he was assembling these people. Uh, and then we just basically all went to work. Yeah, I, I guess you being a professional and having, you know, been in the same studio with Hal Blaine and, and the Carol Kays and the like, that this was just more of the more of the same, more professionals working together. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Great. Nice. OK, thank you very much. Fantastic. You awesome. Thank you so much for your devotion to this wonderful time in all our lives and for bringing more awareness to people that may not already have turned on to what your passion is. So I wish you the best in promoting what started and what will be continuing because, you know, those cars from the 60s are never going to go away. (laughs) I mean, might be converted to hydrogen or electricity or whatever, but <laughs> those bodies are those fins. <laughs> That's right. They can never rot. No way. No way. They're, they, they are being cherished by so many people in places like Palm Springs. And I'm sure there's places in Toronto as well, where there's mid-century uh, museums or, or neighborhoods that specialize in that. You, yep. Do you ever see a, a, a 57 T-bird go by? 
Yes, we 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 try to hit the uh, the car shows that are happening regularly in the Walmart parking lots or whatever, <laughs> and and uh, there I always marvel at the chrome on these things, and you know the metal, the fact that they were strong pieces, mighty pieces of machinery. You know, it, it's wonderful, and they have a resiliency. And we that do this sort of thing, I like to think that we do as well. Mm. And we will keep uh, spreading the word about all things 60s and mid-century. Thank you very much for having me. This has been a thrill. Thanks so much for being on Love's a Secret Weapon. One night with you. Yes, sir.